0: Every once in a while, on a journey like my quest to get at the truth of the Nassar Square incident, you meet someone who's trying to improve the system, so that military veterans, like the men of Raven 2-3, veterans who are wrongfully convicted and imprisoned, aren't forgotten. Sergeant Derek Miller knows exactly what that's like, to wind up in a prison cell on charges concocted out of coerced testimony and a compromised forensics investigation. Sergeant Miller was on his third deployment with the Maryland Army National Guard in 2010 when he killed an Afghan man during an interrogation. His platoon leader testified that the man was a Taliban scout who grabbed Sergeant Miller's gun and that Sergeant Miller's actions saved lives when the platoon was attacked later that day. But, as in the Raven 2-3 case, prosecutors didn't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Sergeant Miller wound up in Fort Leavenworth with a mandatory life sentence. The case caught the attention of Texas Congressman Louis Gohmert. Representative Gohmert served in the U.S. Army's Judge Advocate General Corps, so he knew exactly what he was talking about when he said the case needed to be reexamined. The Army Clemency and Parole Board reduced Miller's sentence and paroled him last year. He now works as Representative Gohmert's military advisor. We talked about his new mission, military criminal justice reform, and how his case came from the same prosecutorial playbook as the Nassau Square shootings. This is Raven 2 3 Presumption of Guilt. I'm Gina Keating. Think again. So, Sergeant Miller, please tell us about your background, where you grew up, what your dreams were, and why you decided to join the Armed Forces.
1: Well, I, I grew up in Frederick, Maryland. Um, I was a son to a single mother, and throughout my, my youth, I watched her work two jobs and put herself through college um, so that she could provide uh, some of what I wanted, but all, everything that I needed. And that was a big thing for me growing up. Um, just just watching her dedication and her, her drive helped mold and shape me into the the family man that I became. Um it became a a very big point of uh, pride for me to be able to provide for my children and for my wife. And I just really think that, you know, coupling that with my love for sports and my love for, for country, um, it really just made a perfect storm for me to become um Maryland Army National Guard soldier. Um, I I I went to college for a short period of time, and and, um, that really experience wasn't for me. But I I also found uh, a really strong camaraderie and and brotherhood, and the community there. You know, playing sports and and, and watching people uh, work through some of the difficulties at home, and and learning about um, you know different cultures and the the blending of, of. you know, uh, societies and, and different backgrounds, um, and it really was a microcosm for the military within itself. So you take that from that small town guy who grew up in Frederick, Maryland, uh, who watched his mother, um, you know, do everything she could to, to, to bring him up in a, a safe environment, and then going to college and, and meeting a, a new group of people who were having similar experiences, although it was from a bunch of different backgrounds. We all had that similar that, that love for our families and, and wanting to make a better way for them. Um, unfortunately I, I didn't finish school and I, I came home early and began working in construction. Um from there I I worked for a, a subcontracting company and essentially had my own um kitchen and bath installation. Um I had one employee and we'd go around and, and put in kitchens and, and baths and pull out the drywall and it was you know awesome for me to know where I came from and then be able to look back and say, look, this is something that I helped build to provide for my family. And um, times got rough. We really ran into a hard spot where uh, there weren't a lot of jobs coming in and it was a highly competitive field and I ended up getting laid off. So at that point I had uh, one daughter, I had a wife, I had a mortgage and, and two car payments and I looked around and I couldn't figure out how I was going to put food on the table. And my wife uh, had a strong background in, in, in the military. Her, her brother, both of her brothers were in the military. Her dad served during Vietnam. Uh, my grandfather served uh, in the Korean War. And uh, we sat down and talked about it and felt like it was a perfect uh, fit. Uh, I joined the Maryland Army National Guard and I shipped out to BASIC uh, very shortly after. And I, I excelled. Um, we were able to get a, a bonus so that I could keep a roof over my kid's head and, and keep food on the table. And as I just continued to get more experience in, in, in the military, um, I, I felt like I should have joined back when I was 18. It was literally a, a perfect marriage of learning leadership skills, of uh, being able to know that you're keeping your family and other families uh, safe and um just that physical nature, that that camaraderie that you felt in sports uh, even magnified because you know that um, the more you learn, uh, the more people you're going to be able to keep safe. And that is really what drove me uh, and and propelled me in the Maryland Army National Guard.
0: Wow, you have done a lot in your young life. Um, Could you tell our listeners what led you, when you were in the Maryland National Guard, to volunteer for three combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, why was that important? You did far above and beyond uh, what a normal guardsman would do. So, what, what compelled you to do that?
1: Well, I, I knew that when I, I joined the National Guard, um, I, I wanted to take my career as far as I possibly could. And I know that part of leadership is understanding the orders that you're giving. And I felt like I needed to experience all of our theaters of combat, whether it was Iraq, Afghanistan, anything that I could, you know, go and learn from, you know, veteran leaders who had already been there um, and understand the orders that I was giving. So if I told a soldier, look, you know, go in that building with the fire team and and secure that compound and we're going to, you know, stage operations out of there. Or if I told you, Hey, move to that hill uh, and, and lay down suppressive fire, that I needed to have all of that order. I needed to understand the risk that I was asking them to take, Uh, because every order that you give has the potential to either save lives or or, or lose lives. And I think a critical part of leadership is knowing the risk that you're asking your soldiers to take and understanding the the, the possible outcomes. So for me, uh, it was a no-brainer to go to every theater that we had, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and, and just gather as much information, uh, practical experience as I could, so that when I came back to my home unit, uh, those guys had the best version of me possible. Uh, It came at a cost. Um, Honestly, looking back, uh, awards and schools and deployments uh, was time away from my kids, time away from my wife, uh, time that I could have been solidifying those bonds with with my young ones that, uh, frankly, I I didn't. And I I really thought that, hey, look, if, if I'm married to my wife for 40 years, if I'm you know father to my kids and I take them to soccer games and uh, you know watch them ballet and play piano and do all those things that dads do. Um, if I'm gone for 12 months and I'm home for 15 years they won't even notice it because they're so little um, but it just didn't work out that way for me.
0: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So when you were paroled in 2019 last year uh, you immediately went to work for other combat veterans who'd been wrongly accused of battlefield crimes. Can you explain why was that important to you? Why didn't you just want to get away from this whole experience?
1: Uh, well, it's, it, it was a twofold for me. Um, there are plenty of guys who, who left uh, Leavenworth who had similar charges and crimes to me, and, and they went back to their normal life and really just spent time with their loved ones. But I, I think... I saw that and I knew that if I left and I just went back to my normal life, um, started working construction or doing whatever, uh, you know, God had in in store for me, I would, um, be leaving behind some people that I knew were also innocent of of, of crimes. And, um, I'm not the kind of guy who is able to turn his back on his friends or are people who I know that have been long convicted. Uh, so I, I took the opportunity that Congressman Gohmert offered me and and went ahead and and decided to just continue to fight and make sure that we can try to get this military justice system um, to be the best version of itself, to actually mirror uh, justice and and not put people in prison who (laughs) are are not guilty. So that was a a big choice for me, and and I'm glad that the opportunity came my way.
0: That is pretty pretty, uh, amazing. So let's talk about the military criminal justice system. Um, you know, my listeners are very interested in the case of, of Raven 2-3. Some people call him the Biden 4. Um, and when I heard about your story and talked to you, I was just shocked at the parallels uh, between the two cases. Can you talk about why it's so important um to reform the military criminal justice system, why does it need it, and can you give us some specific examples of uh, a breakdown uh, in the system uh, from your from your case?
1: Sure, uh, the military justice system needs reform. It needs oversight, just like any system, uh, whether it's you know government or private inter- enterprise. Uh, it needs oversight, because if it doesn't have it, they will run rampant. And we're seeing that now. Uh, as of right now, the military justice system uh, has no one, no, no direct oversight. Basically, um, they write their own rules, and Congress reviews them and makes recommendations. But a lot of the the members um, don't have practical military experience. Luckily, uh, Congressman Gomer does, and, and one was a judge advocate general, so using some of his, his experience and his knowledge of the military justice system, it just does not fit with the actual practical application uh, of justice. Uh, you'll hear a lot of generals and uh, officers talk about using the military justice system as a tool for good order and discipline, and that is simply not what the system is built for. It is supposed to mirror justice. It is supposed to give out uh, look at the facts, the hard facts of the case and determine innocence or guilt. It is not simply used as a tool to punish and, and, and deter people uh, from any action that that commander feels is, is against their presumption of what they want the military to be. And if you look at uh, cases like Eddie Gallagher, when you find out that he was uh, wrongfully accused, they had video that exonerated him and they chose the press board with a court martial. Uh, at that point, the investigation has been fatally flawed. If you have proof that someone did not commit a crime and you continue to let an investigation go forward because political pressure is being put on you by a foreign government, well, that's that's not justice. Uh, you are simply being used as a tool of a foreign government to punish our soldiers. And we saw that, and we're watching that play out in the uh, Biden 4 or Raven 23 case, where uh, they have substantial evidence that no crime occurred, that these guys took every opportunity to protect themselves and to protect foreign diplomats against a a foreign threat, Uh, and obviously they were exonerated once. Uh, The judge found grievous uh, violations of their constitutional rights, and Vice President Biden went out with the uh, president of Iraq and made a political statement that they were going to continue to prosecute these guys regardless of the facts. Um, it's just a sad state, and it becomes, unfortunately, the justice system become a tool of foreign uh, entities, whether it's Taliban, whether it's Al-Qaeda, whether it's uh, Boko Haram, whoever it is, that now they don't need a, a bullet uh, or a bomb to take our, our, our warfighters off the battlefield. They simply can use uh, propaganda, uh, campaigns, and um, public sentiment to lock our soldiers up. And now we have to fight to get the system fixed. But the military system is even more skewed than the civilian side. If you have uh, Judicial Watch and other uh, organizations who will put pressure uh, for transparency in some of these cases, the military, you have asked uh, a general to select a jury. He's also already signed off on someone's house being raided. He's already signed off on pre chalk confinement, and now he has full authority to pick and dismiss jurors um, while he also gets to sign off on their promotions, whether he gets to sign off on their duty assignments. And that system is not impartial in any way, shape, or form. Uh, On the civilian side, you have the ability to get someone from any walk of life who has no relation to um, the accused, who has no promotion tied up or no review uh, by any of the people in that chain of command. Um, But in the military, you are kind of set up in a system where everybody is tied to each other. And now you ask them to separate their rank, their duty station, and their promotion and make a decision that will impact yes, the right of the the life of the accused, but also their own trajectory of their career, and it's really really not fair that you put the defendant or the accused in that position, or the uh, panel members. Uh, it is the system is inherently flawed, and there need to be changes to correct the system.
0: Wait, now let's go back over that because I think a lot of people just like me don't really understand how the military criminal justice system differs from the civilian now you had you had expressed that uh the jury is picked in a different way there's no oversight over the prosecutors and um and that a lot of times the defense uh attorneys aren't involved in the case from the very beginning so can you kind of for people like me who didn't know this explain how this system works
1: sure sure One- once an investigation has started, there's an allegation of a, any uh, improper act. Uh, Criminal Divest Investigation Division, uh, CID, will go out and investigate a crime. Uh, they primarily work with the prosecution. Uh, they are like the left hand of the prosecution, and they go out to the scene. They'll do site exploitation. They'll do forensics and, and whatever, and then give a report to a commander in the field uh, as to what their recommendation is. Now, obviously, if they work right and left-hand with the prosecution, they're going to give reasons why a prosecution should move forward. There is no defense investigation unit who goes out to the scene to do site exploitation, uh, who does you know, all the analysis and gives a report to the commander why they should not move forward. And I, I believe that that is an inherent flaw with the system. There should be uh pros and cons to any choice that a commander is going to make on the field, similar similar to going into a strategic combat situation. You're going to get pros and cons. So why should the military system be any different? So then you move forward from there. If you get a flawed investigation report that only gives you reasons why you should, you know, move forward with an investigation that allows for uh hearsay or you know, even erroneous charges that will never even be brought forward at a court-martial to be written into a sworn statement by a quote witness um, who can then retract them at any time. You're not giving the commander the proper tools to make an educated decision about whether something should go forward to a court-martial, whether an investigation should continue. Um, That, for me, is the beginning of a flawed process. When you move forward to the command level, once you move past that initial battlefield commander who makes a recommendation, all right, I have information from CID, although it's maybe flawed, but enough information to believe that something improper occurred. Uh, and then you move forward, you take that soldier out of the field and you move them back to the states where they have a general officer who is in charge of that post. That general officer gets that, that field report from CID and he has a judge advocate general. Now that is a, a legal officer who advises them From a standpoint, they're supposed to be impartial, but most of the time they work, again, with the prosecution, with that CID unit. And they make another recommendation that something improper occurred based on that initial report. And they will sign off on a soldier having their their house raided for more potential evidence uh, for that soldier who was accused now being placed in pretrial confinement. Then they also have the authority and the duty, actually, to select a jury, a a group of uh, military members who will uh, preside over that case. And then that, that same officer who is advising the general officer will also make a recommendation to the command back in the States of what to do with the soldier. So now you have more misinformation going into that unit. That commander who is back in the States who's in charge of the accused will now inform his lieutenants and lower uh, lower, uh, uh, enlisted about the potential charge that this person is facing. Now, all of that turns into potential jury members, right? Every officer and noncommissioned officer is a potential witness against the accused who is now receiving, whether it's a flawed investigation report or accurate investigation report, Information about this case before the defense team has had an opportunity to speak to the command who has ever had a chance to really intimately view or cross examine any witnesses. And now you have a narrative that is being leaked out to any other potential jury member through gossip and, and word of mouth, uh, emails warning people about, you know, hey, stay away from the, you know, soldier X because he's accused of X, Y, and Z. Um, it just creates a Uh, An atmosphere where you have to prove yourself innocent rather than the prosecution has to prove your guilt.
0: My gosh. Uh,
1: You're essentially stacking the deck.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as I have written many times about the case of Raven 2-3, there is a motive with prosecutors to win these cases and to bring high-profile cases that... Uh, they think is going to bring them attention. Now, with uh, the civilian world, it's because mostly they want, you know, jobs in the private sector. What is it? I mean, is there a similar motive in the military? Can you explain that? Yes,
1: there is a similar motive, and at some point they do want to cross over to the civilian world, but there's also a highly competitive field of, of officers who want to get promoted, who want to be that judge advocate general and move forward with their career. So if... You have a case come across your desk of a soldier who's accused of X, Y, or Z, and it's the difference between you having the uh, same awards as another soldier going up for uh, that same promotion, having a 98% conviction rate, versus the other soldier having a, a 50 or 60% conviction rate. Who do you think is going to be selected for promotion? So you have really created a, a, an atmosphere where the truth of the matter is, is not... Really, at the heart of the investigation, it is the uh, promotion rate and then the atmosphere of there's no punishment for prosecutors. No matter how far they've gone, when you watch in Eddie Gallagher's case, for example, the prosecutors putting malicious lines of code in their email so they can monitor communications between the defense team and Eddie Gallagher, there was no punishment. You never saw a court martial take place. You never heard of that person being removed from, you know, trying federal courts. They were just simply transferred to someplace else so they could c- continue that behavior and, and, and be promoted. So if you have no punishment for people violating the rights to be accused, well, then it's a, a an approval. In a sense, if I'm getting promoted for continuing this bad behavior, then it must be okay.
0: I never heard that before. That is a crime. How do they? How do they get away with that? That's that's incredible. Yes. Yeah, so so basically, when when you talk about the need for reforms, you're talking about some very specific things, and and that includes oversight. Tell me what the other things you and, and Representative Gohmert are working on. So some of
1: the things that we're Working on is trying to get soldiers access to the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and in an average military case, a soldier does not have access to the Supreme Court unless uh, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, CAS, uh, grants review and relief in that case. Well, if they grant review and, re- and relief, they've already admitted that something was wrong with that case. It's the other 90% of the cases that. Are being rubber stamped that the soldiers want review. They want the Supreme Court to look at the constitutional, you know, violations by, by the military courts that their due process was violated, whether evidence wasn't collected correctly, or there was missteps by the prosecution, whether it was uh, deliberate or accidental, um, to be you looked in their case so they can either get retrials or resentencing, receive some sort of relief and. On average, if you look at an American citizen, they have a guaranteed right to the Supreme Court. If you look at the rest, normal federal appeals court, they have a right to the Supreme Court. Even illegal aliens uh, uh, coming across the border, people who you know, have filed for citizenship here, they have a right to the Supreme Court. But our service members, the people fighting for the Constitution, aren't having the same protection. So we, we are putting forward a bill. Uh, it, it will probably be in the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act, to uh, get soldiers uh, access to the Supreme Court, uh, get a guaranteed review uh, so that they can have this exact same rights that uh, American citizens uh, enjoy. So that is one of our, our primary initiatives. We're also looking at trying to uh, remove some of that uh, unlawful command influence, and, and that even if it's just the perception of it within that jury selection, allowing either National Guard or reservists uh, who do not fall under the command structure of the general on post who gets to normally select uh, the, the members of that panel um, as part of a, a jury so that uh, our soldiers have a better uh, chance at impartiality. Uh, And and even if they are convicted, ultimately, it will be in a a clear and transparent way where you don't feel like the people who are put on that panel have an obligation or or feel pressure from the command for the next duty station, for that promotion board, for that uh, review. Um, That will give our service members a little bit more uh, security and stability, knowing that there's not that pressure on those panel members to come in and, and find them guilty. Uh, So those are some of our primary
0: initiatives. That's wonderful. Now, you and I talked about uh, some of the prosecutorial misconduct that has occurred in both your case and in the case of Raven 2-3. Um, I've counted six, at least six, Brady violations in which the prosecution hid evidence, suborn perjury, um, uh, bullied witnesses to change their testimony uh threaten to put people uh, in prison if they wouldn't or charge them if they wouldn't testify the way that the prosecution wanted them to. Now, some of these things occurred in, in your case as well. Can you talk about that a little and what needs to be done uh, to rein some of these prosecutors in from doing this stuff? Because they obviously feel like this is absolutely OK.
1: They do feel like this is okay, and it's completely unacceptable. I mean, they they use these tactics against, you know, uh, drug cartels and people who are actively going out and and trying to attack uh, the American citizens and and do things to circumvent the justice system. But our soldiers, our warriors, our warfighters are out there trying to defend this country from foreign threats. And when they they threaten witnesses uh, to change their story, when they offer uh, grants of immunity... Under, under, you know, veiled threats of, look, you're going to be charged with an accessory or you can change your testimony so that it favors our, our theory of a case rather than looking at the actual facts that surround the case. Uh, that's an act that honestly needs to be punished harshly. These tactics should not be used uh, to change testimony so that it favors the government. They should simply be looking for the fact of the matter and, and, and analyzing what actually took place. So in my case, the government failed to collect critical evidence that would have you know, exonerated me. They didn't do any fingerprint analysis on my weapon after I told them that the Taliban insurgent grabbed my weapon and I fired a single shot to kill him. When my, my other uh, soldier gave a similar testimony, he said that there was a struggle for my weapon and I fired a single shot. They threatened with uh, potential jail time as being an accessory to murder and unless he changed his story to reflect that there was no struggle. We were lucky enough to get his initial sworn statement that he wrote that there was a struggle and that I fired my weapon in the struggle admitted to a jury. That still was not enough to exonerate me. They had already had a, a narrative, and it didn't matter how many times that their witness changed his story. It didn't matter how many times that he lied under oath. Uh, that the jury found him to be credible on what he changed the story to rather than what he had said 15 times prior. And I, I think you see that in, in some of the Raven 2-3 case. When you look at some of the sworn statements that uh, people testified against or, or wrote against the Raven 2-3 guys, and you look at some of their prior statements before the CID and, and, and the investigators uh, threaten them, uh, it, it's, it, it's stark. And, and you... And you I believe that we need to have a a review board for some of these cases that an independent congressional committee needs to be put together to look at these cases, to analyze the prosecutorial misconduct, and and needs to have teeth. Either these guys need to be disbarred, they need to be, you know, prevented from practicing in federal courts. there has to be some sort of mechanism where these prosecutors are held accountable. Otherwise, it is consent, and they believe that these things are sanctioned, and they can continue to do these, not just to other warfighters, but other Americans. I, I know that once the American people understand the lengths that they're going to treat our service members like uh, cartel members, they're going to be appalled, and there will be drastic changes.
0: I really hope you're right. And frankly, I'd like to see some of the prosecutors in the Raven 2-3 case go to prison because they deprived four innocent people of their freedom and basically ruined uh, their lives, you know, put their families in the poorhouse. You know, the conditions that these families were forced to endure uh, over the last 12 years, which is how long it took them to, you know, put them in prison, is absolutely uh, abhorrent i just i can't believe it so i hope that you are successful now of course there's this argument that we see every time president trump um, pardons uh, a military uh, member a war fighter uh, that this is somehow undermining the military justice system can you speak to that
1: absolutely i, I think that uh... President Trump has a critical role. Any president has a critical role to play in the justice system, uh, especially in the military. He is the the chief, the, the head of, of the military branch. And if you look at the mandate for court martial, it expressly says that the president and the convening authority, which he is the the top of, have the right to intervene in cases. Uh, now, there's some of those. Some of those um, regulations have been curtailed over time, uh, through the National Defense Authorization Act. But obviously, the president's right to pardon cannot be infringed, and I, I think that a lot of commanders have an idea of what they want the military to be, and you, um, as a as a soldier, as, as a quote a pawn and and their in their machine. Uh, they view any interdiction in their judgment to be a, a quote, violation or, or infringement on the military as a whole. And I just don't believe that that is true. I, I think that if you look at what the president has done, you look at what how he analyzes these cases, he, he picks out specific ones where he sees injustice, and he steps in and, and, and protects the soldiers from, frankly, these, these rogue prosecutors, from these rogue generals. Um, I think that, really, that's where true leadership is. When someone can step out and, and look at a case, an, a situation of injustice, and regardless of what all the people around you are saying, if you read the whole, the whole transcript, if you read the appeals filing, if you find that you know somebody got railroaded, you can still step forward and say, uh, I'm going to take care of this person. I'm going to exonerate them and free them and give them their life back. Uh, that that's, gives hope to all those people who are on the front lines. It shows soldiers that, you know, even if the deck's back against you, somebody up high has your back, and they'll step forward and and, and give you your life back. Right. So I, I think if you, if you talk to Clint Lawrence, if you talk to any of those more, more recent pardons that the president made, um, they have received emails and, and letters and just tons of support from people who are in the service and people who serve Many many years before them, whether it's uh, Vietnam and Korea, or World War II, saying that they supported them, and then they're glad that the president stepped forward and showed leadership to to give them their life back.
0: I think so too. Um, last question: I interviewed an attorney named Joseph Lowe the fourth. He's a former Marine, and he defended a lot of soldiers uh, in the military criminal justice system, including. A soldier uh, who was involved in the Eddie Gallagher case, who was threatened by the prosecution uh, and uh, and told that if he didn't testify the way they wanted, that, uh, that they would try to charge him. And of course, uh, Mr. Lowe uh, got this guy uh, free and clear of all this. And when I interviewed him, he said that a lot of this idea that it's fine to do this is because of the culture of military leaders, in which soldiers are seen as expendable. He said that this has led to a, a system that is win at all costs. And, you know, you and I talked about that a little bit, and you just kind of referenced that. But can you tell us a little bit more about that culture?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look in the past of the military, it was it was much more like the family, where uh, the well-being and, and the family um, atmosphere helped to build that, that lower enlisted soldier up to be a leader. And now it's more of a corporation. Uh, it's looked at as uh, a bottom line where the commanders and the, the top-line leaders are the ones who uh, are the valuable commodity, right? To them, they can always get another soldier. They can always get another private. they are going to be people who want to enlist out of high school, out of college, uh, to be lieutenants and and they can replace all those guys, but to the leadership, the people who are high up in the food chain, they think that their reign is supreme and and that they make the decisions and that the people who are below them are, are for some reason, uh, can be cast away. And, And when you look at the backdrop of, you know, favorable relationships with foreign governments, when it comes to, uh, major policy decisions and, and, and command moves, um, to them, the ends justify the means. If they have to cast a Raven two, three, a, a group of guys in, in the prison to to have a favorable relationship with Iraq, if they have to lock a Eddie Gallagher up or, or Clint Lawrence um, up to them, it, it justifies the means because they will have solidified a relationship that will last them a decade, 15, 20 years uh, versus the life of one special operations soldier or one sergeant first class and that culture, that environment has permeated and those prosecutors feel like, you know what, I am I'm doing what my commander truly wants. I'm putting someone away who they don't want in quote their military. And uh, we have become an expendable commodity, and I I hope and I pray that some of the steps that we're taking will reverse that trend, will provide uh, the the protections for the people who are out there on the front lines defending, you know, our families and and making sure that we have the right to protest and and bear arms and and live in a free society. Um, It's just a scary thought that these individuals think that they can just run over our rights like this.
0: Very, very well said. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and appreciate everything that you're doing. Um, so I guess we'll we'll be watching what you and Representative Gohmert, uh do and and wish you all the best.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for.: having me.
0: Absolutely.